Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah, you do need a sense of humor. You find that people with a good sense of humor uh, uh, get on and uh, you're happy to work with them. And people who are miserable, you are happy to never see them again. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humour. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast has had the most extraordinarily successful career in the music business. For over 40 years, he's played with a who's who of legendary rock superstars from bands such as Queen, Free, Spandau Ballet, Whitesnake, Duran Duran, The Boomtown Rats and Roxy Music, to name but a few. He has performed on stage at many of the most iconic concerts of the past 40 years, including Live Aid, The Prince's Trust Party in the Park and Nelson Mandela's Concert for AIDS. He was also musical director for the Freddie Mercury Memorial Concert at Wembley. As the leader of the SAS band, Spikes All-Stars, he has regularly wrangled the richest revolving guest list of rock and roll greats onto stages around the world. Spike Edney, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Very glad to be here. And I like the use of wrangling and revolving in the sentence. That's really good. <laughs> we love alliteration, alliteration here. Um, Spike, it's lovely to have you here. Um, to survive over 40 years in the music business, do you need a great sense of humour? You better have one, I think, because uh, you better be able to uh, take the rough with the smooth. And there's an awful lot of rough before you get the smooth. I can, I can assure you of that. So, yeah, you do need a sense of humour. You find that people with a good sense of humour uh, get on and uh, you're happy to work with them. And people who are miserable you are happy to never see them again. So. so do you think that, I mean, having been in bands myself, do you think that if it's not there, you can't stay for that long? For instance, you've been with Queen 
I think since is it 1985 or something 84. like that? August 1984. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, there must be something about adapting and getting rapport and having a sense of humour that makes them want to be around you for that many years. Well, let's hope so. Um, I, there are some bands who kind of thrive on tension and uh, discord. And some of those bands actually do last uh, as long as they take long holidays from each other. And I think that that is the key to any successful big band is uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder as well. So and when, then when you're together, you can have energy and, you, and fun has got to be a big part of it. Otherwise life is miserable. I, I mean, I, I've been in situations on tour where a band is getting near the end of its life and everybody's just miserable and everybody else's co company and the smallest thing can it can be irksome but that's the same in any group of people where um, somebody's uh slightly annoying habit becomes a, a major problem for another member of the band so holidays are good and having funny people around and in the band to ease the tension is definitely good and not everybody's funny but as long as you've got one or two that really helps. Well, I I always remember the uh, John Lennon quote, and I know you're a huge Beatles fan uh, as well. And uh, when he was going through some miserable times in his life in the studio, which just shows his sense of humour, he turned to Paul McCartney and went, the reason my life is shit is because your tambourine is out of time. <laughs> there you go. I'm not going to that. And what was the other great thing in the... Some of Sergeant Pepper, where Paul McCartney's all jolly, saying it's getting better all the time, it's getting better, and Lennon comes in with it can't get no worse. I mean, <laughs> and you. it stayed in the mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, well, that's a, what it's an interesting thought, though. Would the Beatles have stayed together if they'd have been allowed a break and allowed some space? Probably. Um, I, I'd say probably. What do I know? Um, I can imagine that would work. I could also imagine that you would have to keep your wives out of your business because that's always a tricky thing. Um, um, when four guys are being creative together and there's a balance going on, or the, the hierarchy is kind of set, the power hierarchy, and it's obvious what that was with the Beatles, then to bring in another person um, can either be a positive thing or a negative thing. I'm, I do recall that at one point, uh, John Lennon wanted to invite Brian Jones when he quit the Rolling Stones or they kicked him out. He wanted to invite him to join the Beatles because he thought he was a real uh, creative and chaotic influence that he wanted to bring into the Beatles to stir it up. Well, that didn't work out, uh, sadly. So uh, Yoko took that role and it didn't turn out to be the creative, exciting influence that perhaps he was hoping for. So. Well, you, you talk about a power hierarchy in a band. Is there a humour hierarchy in a band? Do you know, the only band that I can think of that didn't have any humour hierarchy was Dexie's Midnight Runners. Um, uh, their humour was very much um, frowned upon because it's, I think they thought it showed weakness or something. But um, I'm trying to think. Um, in every band I've been in or every group of musicians... There are people who are 
outstandingly funny and there are people that are less than funny but of course you can overdo it you don't want to over egg the pudding because the person that's funny all the time can get an annoying i once had the pleasure stroke misfortune to stand next to frank carson for an hour that was the <laughs> longest hour of my life the first 15 minutes was glorious the last 45 i wanted to kill him because <laughs> he just wouldn't shut up you know and of course it was funny and i heard my sides laughing but i didn't want it anymore i was done it was like you know too much christmas pudding till you're sick that kind of thing yeah and another thing yeah. <laughs> have you heard this one and and some of the gags were funnier than the ones he'd done on the stage previously in his routine he was funnier at the bar than he was on stage but and i kept trying to leave you know you haven't heard this one yet you know and oh god thank you for I, I actually met him he, he was a friend of a friend of mine, Adrian Walsh, is a comedian from Northern Ireland and used to know him very well. And, and the word relentless comes to yes. mind. Relentless humour. I mean, you know, death by laughing, certainly. The other um, situation I can uh, remember where there was virtually no humour whatsoever was uh, the afternoon I spent in Van Morrison's company um, uh, and his band, who were on their own were very funny, but the moment he walked in the room, they weren't funny anymore. So um, there was definitely a, a handbrake of humour in that situation. A handbrake of humour. We'll be using that one, Spike. <laughs> credit, <laughs> credit me. Credit me. Oh, you'll get a credit. And I mean, you know, it'll, it'll be in big letters as well. It'll be above the title. <laughs> oh, what makes you laugh, Spike? People. People, uh, the things they say, I mean, it's classic stuff. Uh, the moment you try to be funny, you, it probably doesn't work, but the accidental humor um, can have you in stitches. Uh, and uh, when you work with a bunch of people for a long time, you get a telepathy. And sometimes you don't even have to say anything. You just look, something happens and you look at each other, and I, I, there have been situations where I turn around and I don't even say anything, I just look, and if you don't blink, they know that they need to pay attention because something is going on nearby or whatever. And I love that telegraphic thing where you can share humour with somebody without having to point it out. And does that actually happen on stage? as well because I know that you are and I know you don't like the term but you're the musical director for Queen or essentially and so when I know you don't like the term but so I, I use I, it we'll, we'll go through that yeah use that advisedly uh, I do something that is quite unique a musical director tells them what to play I don't tell them what to play I remind them what to play <laughs> <laughs> We're going to the middle eight now. Well, that kind of thing has happened on many, many occasions. Um, what happens, how many verses before the chorus, you know, and, and how many choruses? Well, it depends which version we're doing. Are we doing the 1980 version or the 1990 version? You know, we have so many versions of so many songs that uh, uh, think of me as a court, uh, as a musical stenographer. I'm the one that sort of keeps all the notes and, um, and then pulls out the references when we need to make a decision about something. And if I'll explain all that in detail if you want later, but so, uh, but, but the humor, um, it, yeah, you always need the humor because sometimes, well, you know, ca catastrophe is only one fret away and, um, <laughs> and you better have, uh, you know, some humor in your uh, reservoir or in your reserve account to, um, to cope with that because you may need it. I, I, again, this is yours as well, just for the record. Cas catastrophe is only one fret away. Yeah. I just love that. That is brilliant. 
Um, I was watching a documentary uh, about Queen and you feature in it, but at one stage, Adam Lambert is saying, I kept on looking over at Spike when I first started just to know if I was coming in yet. Well, that's true. And, and bless him, um, it, he was very, very amenable to that because some people either uh, are not used to being told what to do or don't have the mechanism or the facility to look around and check. Um, uh, you know, you can be, work with people who get in, go into a blind panic and close in, look inward, instead of saying, oh, bugger, I don't know where I am. I need help. Now, that person I've really got a lot of time for because that means they're part of the team and uh, I'm always ready to help. Now, Queen hates rehearse. Uh, the, you know, the established members of Queen hate to rehearse. And so bang it through twice and it's in, you know, that, that's, the, that's the rule. And um, then Adam will be leaning heavily on me when that happens. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, it's funny because I think that stars have always um, done, couldn't remember their lyrics. I once, uh, when in, he was in the, the last days of his careers, went to Caesar's Palace to see Frank Sinatra and it was his wife's birthday and Nancy opened for him and was right down the front in the, the big room at Caesar's Palace. And what I couldn't get over was Frank was reading the words to my way. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, and I suppose, you know, well, okay, he was getting older, but I think they just like it as a comfort blanket. Yeah, I mean, so, sometimes it's only there for if their mind goes blank and they can just look down and, and re remember what the third verse is or something. Or do they repeat the first verse? So you can't blame them for that. Tell me a funny story about when you've been on stage and maybe it's gone wrong, but it's 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 worked out. Well, it's uh, this is probably uh, politically incorrect um, according to modern day sensitivities, but you know a lot of humour that happens is incorrect. Um, I do and have done for about ten years now this thing called the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Now, um, this is where uh, people who have always wanted to have been in a rock band and played with other people at the highest level can pay money to go away for four days to a camp where the, a person like me brings together the four or five disparate characters and basically um, I whip them into shape so they can go on stage at um, the House of Blues or the Whiskey A Go-Go and play together as a band, play three songs. Now, this is terrifying, a terrifying concept to a lot of people. These guys uh, and women may have been enthusiastic musicians in their teens or whatever, gave up when they went to college and became doctors, lawyers, nurses. And now somebody's bought them this as their 50th birthday present. Um, and they come along filled with fear, anticipation. Normally it's a case of, I haven't held a guitar or played a guitar for 30 years. I'm, I'm going to make a fool of myself, but it's not a, what we do is we encourage them and get their strengths and get them to be fulfilled playing with other people. And it works really well. And you can put five people in a room that don't know each other in the morning. By the end of the afternoon, they're arguing about how wild thing goes and um, where does the bee fit in and, and all this kind of thing. And in four days, <clears throat> you've written a song with them and they are on stage at the Whiskey A Go-Go or the House of Blues in Hollywood and they are playing together as a band. 
And but it's a really intense but uplifting experience for them. So, and with that in mind, um, I was brought on board to help organise one of these in London at Abbey Road, and a whole bunch of people uh, from all over the world. We have normally have about fifty or sixty campers, as they call. They came to Abbey Road, and we spend a whole uh, three or four days um, playing and. Uh, we actually recorded a Beatles song each there and uh, we rehearse songs, Beatles songs, and, um, and hear stories. But, on, but the finale for this one was going to be at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. So we all uh, go up on the train, as in Hard Day's Night, and we all sat around singing guitars, the songs that were in that movie. We tried to recreate that moment for them. So we get to the Cavern, and the, and the idea is that I'm, go I'm going to be the band leader and uh, I bring in uh, a couple of the other councillors. One of them's uh, my good friend, Jamie Moses, who I've played with for 40 years and he's in, in my band. And um, we have this whiteboard at the side of the stage and there are 35 Beatles songs there. And we are going to play these 35 songs because everybody knows at least one of them. And we set up a, a, a chart so that um, Ted Smith plays drums on Help and then... Uh, Pete Jones plays guitar on something else, you know, um, Dizzy Miss Lizzie. And, and we didn't really have too much time because we had a limited amount of time, 35 songs, takes a, a while. And I had this poor tour manager, uh, stage manager, Tim, whose job it was to line up the guys at the side, a bit behind the stage, to come through the door, to be ready for the next song. Now, we have been working for four days. None of us had any sleep. We've drunk far too much over those four days enjoying ourselves. So you can imagine we were in a bit of a frazzled state. So to start the 35 minutes, it was okay. But when you're about 15 songs in, you start getting a little bit delirious about what's going to happen, what's happening next. And, and then when we get up towards the end, up to around about number 30, we're ready to die. I'm ready to die. Jamie's losing his voice. We're absolutely ragged. We're sweating. It's, I feel like it's the end of the world inside. <laughs> and and um, we're looking at, I'm looking at the uh, chart and my eyes are watering when suddenly the organiser runs on stage and says, oh, we've got a special guest. Here's Ted Bloggins, who's going to play drums for you. And I went, who the fuck is that? I have no idea who this is. Oh, he's really famous. He's played with all the, all the big bands up here, all the Liverpool bands. He was in them all, which normally means he wasn't in any of them all. <laughs> <laughs> or one of his friends knew the searchers or something like that. Um, so, but we didn't care about it. They said, yeah, get him on, get him on, you know. So he gets behind the drum kit. And we said, do you know, what do you know of this list? And he looked at it and he went, well, not really any of them. I went, what? Well, that shocked me. I said, well, do you know any rock and roll? He said, I know Chuck Berry. I said, great. No particular place to go. And said, right, no longer my automobile. <laughs> so we're off, we go. And we're going around and it goes around a couple of solos. And uh, it gets towards the end. And then the, uh, the nod and the eyebrow come in. I look at Jamie, his voice is going, say we've had enough, look back at the drummer, give him the nod. We're getting ready to stop. And we're all going diddle diddle as though we're stopping. And he's going, and he's off. He goes again, bugger. So we go round again, you know. And then um, we come, we get to the end, and there's another nod, a, a bigger eyebrow to everybody. Here we go, diddly diddly, nothing. He's still carrying on. And I thought, this wanker, 
is so starstruck and he loves the limelight, he doesn't want to get off the bloody stage. No particular place to go became no particular place to stop. <laughs> so we go round about four times like this, you know, being and our gesticulation is getting more and more bigger and bigger and bigger. And till eventually on time number five, Jamie Moses turns around and says, Will you fucking stop playing now? Anyway. <laughs> uh, Oh, but bush, and we are shaking our heads, and we said, "What is wrong with you? Are you fucking deaf?" He said, "No, actually, I'm blind." Ah! <laughs> and so, he, so all our nods and our gesticulations and all all our rock and roll training meant nothing. Well, of course, we cracked up laughing at this. We thought this was absolutely brilliant. Shuggy Sand said, "Well, I mate. and then because the music had stopped for so long, Tim. <laughs> the stage manager, who was also deranged, ran on. He said, what's happening? What's happening? Who's this bloke? I don't even know. Who is he? I said, this is the blind drummer. We're finished with him. Now get me the one-armed trombonist. He said, right, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the learning from that story could be summed up, but you know the film Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? Yeah. And they said... Assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. Yeah, really, really, yeah. He must see this, you know, bigger nod. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is a great story. And, oh, fantastic. I love that. I absolutely love that. So you touched on it earlier on. Is everyone funny or are only some people touched? Because I know that... All my musician friends want to be comedians. All my comedian friends want to be musicians. And there's a lot of crossover in it. Is everybody in the music business funny or not? Um, uh, interesting. A vast majority of people do have uh, humour. Uh, but it's the stories normally. Because you sit down with a bunch of musos and somebody tells the story of when they missed their plane uh, or, got, or fell down the stairs. Uh, whatever, and four or five other guys go, oh, hang on a minute, I've got one of those. And I've always maintained that um, that if you stick a bunch of musicians together backstage with a bottle of wine, the, the stories will happen, you know. Uh, maybe uh, when you're young and, uh, and your career is really important and uh, you, you've got to be seen to be cool, Maybe not so much, but as soon as you've been around the block a couple of times and it's not your first rodeo anymore, um, and you, the musicians will have a, an easy, uh, happy affinity with other musicians. And you go backstage and meet people for the first time. And I spent my whole life meeting people for the first time, especially when we do the Nelson Mandela stuff, where you have to meet um, artists, get them comfortable, and rehearse them and get them out the door so we can do the same with the next one. I can honestly say a room full of comedians is a very unhappy room. Well, having spent 10 years of my life at the comedy store and backstage, I, I, I know that everybody goes, it must have been hilarious. And you no. go, well, no, there were hilarious bits on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, most of people are going, you know, running around going, keep it tight because they're really angry tonight, you know. Is, and he, it's... is he funnier than me? Is he funnier than me? Oh, my God. Oh, it, he, that, he's a therapist backstage, I'm sure. If you think about it, comedy is the hardest thing in the world because 
uh, musicians, and I'm a musician and worked in comedy, musicians can go on and just play. Yeah. And if they don't get a huge round of applause or cheers at the end, they can walk off. But if a comedian doesn't get a laugh, yeah. it is, yeah. you know, that you that's, that's your feedback loop. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, actually, and that's why it is such a hard game. And there's a Jerry Seinfeld quote, which is, you know, that the comedy is, you know, the most visceral sort of like um, closest thing to justice. Um, you know, if you're <laughs> funny, you survive. <laughs> you don't think, you know, that you're done for. Yeah, really. And yeah. it is, it is yeah. comedy is justice. But I, I'm fascinated by the bits because a lot of our listeners will be, you know, not working in the music business, will be working in offices, will be, you know, leaders and thing. But you are a leader in a band. So therefore, you value humour. And I was very interested in what you said about bringing people together and it being a shortcut to being able to go, do we get on? And can, can we get this done? Some artists can be very... Uh self-aware uh, they can also be very introspective and nervous uh, when they're having to deal with um, other musicians out of their comfort zone let's say and there are some who thrive on it there are some who have no problem tony hadley can walk in and go hello mate whatever whoever it is do you know the song yeah all right let's go for it and, and other people go in and go oh my god i'm I ha i'm working with a different drummer and a different keyboard player i've worked with the same people for 20 years and now strangers are in my song you know um and you need a bit of humor to help alleviate that and uh, the other thing is knowing the song that really helps too well, but that's what your job is, isn't it? I mean, I think it's all leaders' jobs to make everybody feel at ease. And yeah. the quickest way to make people feel at ease in, uh, as a psychologist is to actually get on their level of humour. Yes, really. And, yeah. Yeah. and I think it's always incumbent on the person who's leading to find the other person's level. What, what do you think about that? Well, yes. I mean, uh, in, in that position, the band leader is trying to find what makes people comfortable. And sometimes it's humour or just sometimes it's uh, not being too forceful, letting them make the suggestions or giving them options, saying, well, we could do it this way or we could do it that way. I noticed that on your recorded version, you do this, but in your live version, you've changed it to that. What are you most happy with? You know, because you'd never never make the decision for them. Uh, and they normally say, oh, I prefer the studio version. I hate that live version. I say, well, thank God for that. Anything anything to break down the barriers, but the humour, and then of course, when we're playing them, if we make a mistake, always laugh. We always laugh and make a gag out of it. Yeah, it's never a negative moment, you know. And I make mistakes all the time. I put my hand up and I say, sorry, I'm the least trained person here. I fucked up royally. Call me Captain Fuck Up, you know, whatever you want. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that takes the sting out of the situation. And in fact, I've done it on stage as well. If we've launched into something badly and we've, uh, somebody wasn't watching the counting or when you're, when you're playing a whole three hours of songs, it's easy to get the intros mixed up. That can happen. We've had that before. We've been start, I've called one song and the guitar player started the intro to another. 
<laughs> so because he he didn't know the songs that well. You need humour for that. And um, uh, and I've stopped the band regularly. I have no fear in saying, "Whoa, hey, everybody's come such a long way. We could at least attempt to play the right version." <laughs> of the song. Or all play the same song. Yeah, really. The right, yeah, all the, uh, the same song. And um, and the band go, oh yeah, yeah, roll your eyes and then we start again. And the audience, uh, without a doubt, have found this hilarious, hilarious. And um, now some artists would freak out at that, but uh, fortunately, I've always been in a situation where um, it hasn't happened that uh, it's affected the artist. I normally stop it before the artist starts singing if it's wrong. Yeah, the humour of that saves that from being a terribly embarrassing situation. Um, a very good friend of mine is a man called Alan White, who was the drummer, is the drummer of Yes. Yeah. And he was previously the drummer for John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the Plastic Ono band. In fact, he joined John Lennon after he got a phone call from somebody he thought was pretending to be John Lennon and didn't believe it was him. But anyway. I've done a couple of, of um, ad hoc gigs with him and a couple of mates in America. Um, he lives in, Alan lives in Seattle. And um, we put together a program of songs, a couple of his songs, yes songs, and a couple of uh, other great songs. And um, there's one song, Owner of a Lonely Heart, is a big yes song, big yes hit um, in the 80s. And um, it has, it was produced by Trevor Horn and it has samples in it. And Alan being, quite adept, and has used this sample, which sounds like the beginning of the Flintstones, you know, drums, mayhem, and banging and crashing. It's a really angular piece of music that's a sample that happens in the middle of Owner of a Lonely Heart. And great. So uh, we did the song, and it goes off flawlessly. And, um, and we're playing along, we do a few other songs, and then we're going to do I Am... The Warus um, by the Beatles. And in the middle of that, there's a bit uh, before it goes into sitting in an English garden, which is before that, there's a sort of weird, cacophonous, um, orchestrated bit. And if you heard it, you would recognize it instantly. So at, in rehearsal, Alan said, We'll do that bit as well, because it's very hard to actually replicate that live. He said, I'll do the thing, you know, I'm going to do the thing. It'd be great. Yeah. And we said, yeah, of course it will. And we ran through it once or twice. No worries. We get on the stage and we do Owner of a Lonely Heart and we get into that bit and that's good. And then we come along to I Am The Warrus. We get to the middle of it and he hits the button and it goes, Owner of a Lonely Heart kicks off. Now, this floors us completely because we weren't expecting it. And we went, okay, well, look, we have to stop because this is a great moment and everybody's come so far i've come from london and whatever alan should we try that again he said we'll try that again so we play the thing the nuts and we get to it and of course boom the wrong one and like four times we did oh it four God. times until apparently every time he he turned the control and pressed a button he didn't save it or something like that so it just reverted you know now nobody cares about that out front they don't know that you've well, you're, you're just one digital number away from <laughs> catastrophe there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's what happened. And that moment has been uh, a moment that we share, Alan and I share, every time we see each other. I look at him and said, can't you ever play I'm Morris again? And he just holds his head in his hands. And so him, you know, for him, that's a, a moment that keeps him awake at night. And we all have those. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, you, I think you've perfectly answered one of my questions, which was, you know, is it important to be able to laugh at yourself? And you've just given lots of examples of that. Of course it is, because it, it humanises you, not just to the audience, but to your fellow band players, or if you work in business, to your, the, your fellow professionals. Yeah, I mean, and it's also getting back on the horse, isn't it? Because, um, you know, if, if you slip or if, if you come off the rails... Uh, it's, it can go one of two ways. You can either go, oh, my God, oh, we're so sorry. Oh, this is awful. And and you re- go ne- negative or you go, oh, what a cock up. We can do that better, you know, and turn it into a positive thing and move on. And and then it becomes a great moment in the show and the moment that people remember and take away, you know. Well, did you know that in comedy, uh, they used to, when they did sitcoms, because uh, I, I grew up going to sitcom recordings because my best friend's dad was William G. Stewart, who used to do Bless This House, Father, Dear Father, and all those big, and Frost and all those. And they used to deliberately build in things going wrong for the live studio audience. Oh, right. Because psychologically, they used to, uh, the, the audience used to love it. Yeah. And it would get them more involved. And so what you've just described is that humanising and people coming up to you and go, I love that bit, yeah. you know, when it went to shit. But they loved it because you stayed in character, as it yeah, were, yeah. And, 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 and held it and went, we all screw up in life. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you reminded me, uh, I've never done it deliberately. It's only always been genuine. That happens, happens enough. Um, <laughs> but I remember... Um, seeing something, it was a charity show where Rod Stewart and, and Ronnie Wood 
got back together with Kenny Jones to do a kind of semi-faces reunion for a charity event. And they had, I don't think they were actually rehearsed. They might have had a knock through in the afternoon or something. It was great. And, um, and Rod introduced, and here's a song, here's a, here's a version of a great um, R&B blues song that we always loved and we always included. And uh, take it away, Ronnie, you know, uh, Ronnie Wood. So Ronnie Wood starts playing this thing's intro. And then within about three or four bars of the intro, Rod says, oh, Ronnie, come on, mate. Now, come on. I know it's been a long time, but, you know, give us all a break. At least play the right bloody song. And Ronnie looked at him really weird and played exactly the same thing. And the song went on. And um, and afterwards, I went up to Ronnie Wood and I said, what happened there? Because it didn't sound like you actually changed it. He said, I didn't. He was fucking around. He just wanted to have the moment. <laughs> Rod Stewart had called foul on the intro just for the moment. And so um, I, I get that totally, you know? Oh yeah, well, uh, well that's really... What would the world be like without humour? <laughs> well, it'd probably be like North Korea, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's a good answer, actually, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Um, oh, um, how does, I mean, humour uh, is our release valve, isn't it? I mean, especially during this time, um, we need to, I, I mean, I was stuck, uh, I was stuck. I was in lockdown in California during the period here, and I, and I would have a regular <clears throat> Zoom with a, a bunch of friends, the friends that I would have met down the pub or would have been doing a gig with or whatever. We would get together and just catch up, and uh, it was just a non-stop attack of banter and one-liners and uh, mono-entendres and, and whatever. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, and, and that was and that was good. But like anything, you don't want it all the time. You don't want the Frank Carson approach where it just never stops. You want it to be um, a, a pressure pressure release and uh, a relief as well. Yeah. Do you find yourself funny? Oh, I make myself laugh all the time through my own stupidity. Uh, or I can hear my dad or my mum saying, there we are, right little twat you are. You know what I mean? Sort of, I, my subconscious puts in that their line when I find myself doing the thing that they predicted I would do and fucking up with it or whatever, you know, that's just a, yes, I do. I do find myself funny. I don't think I'm hilarious and funny all the time, but I have my moments. <laughs> I also think I'm very unfunny sometimes as well. <laughs> Well, no, but I, I mean, because I know so many comedians and this whole podcast and the book is going to be about humour and how it can improve people's lives and, you know, dramatically, it's like, do you think you learnt how to be funny or was the young Spike funny already and just got better at it? Right. The young Spike was around funny people without realising how funny they were. Uh, my parents had a non, an ongoing sense of humour and I'm sure lots of parents do with their kids around. You know, they have their own kind of language and their own rapport and their own dynamic. And, um, and they made each other laugh a lot. And my mum was constantly um, uh, haranguing, not in a bad way, in a funny way, my old man. Uh, and we would hear this. And um, so it was part of growing up, my, my sister and I, would pick up on this and but we thought this was just a normal way of living um to hear this going on and it was only once i got to uh, see other people the way other people lived and other people's dynamic with their people some people have a miserable childhood and sadly and some people have 
disasters before them and uh, parents, they lose their parents or the parents split up or whatever. I didn't. I, I had my parents until I was 60 years old. And <laughs> I only left home when my mother invited me to. <laughs> <laughs> because being a musician it was great coming back from a gig laying in bed all day getting my washing done getting a cup of tea brought in and having my dinner cooked you know and then the next day i'd go off and do it all again you know and by the age of about 25 she was she'd had enough of that and she was saying i think it's time you found your own place i was crestfallen by this you know being invited to leave um and then I realized more and more what that bubble of humor, that family humor um, was. And thankfully, um, it, it's ingrained in me. And uh, um, when my parents passed and so many of my friends from my sort of teens, 20s and 30s, who are still my friends now, um, went to great pains to tell me how funny and brilliant they thought my parents were and how they used to love coming to our house because they knew that mum and dad will be putting on you know inadvertently just um in their normal sort of banter to each other and the way they reacted a really fun time and they said they loved it and i couldn't get rid of my friends my friends would come around and i couldn't i couldn't get them out they wouldn't leave they wouldn't it wasn't about me it was about <laughs> folks you know so so i'm I realized more and more now that I was blessed by having that growing up and, um, and hopefully um, life hasn't beaten me up so much that I've lost too much of it, you know? So there's some kind of genetic thing in, in it as well, which yeah. you think, you know, but hearing humor and, and understanding it are a different thing, you know, cause some people really hear it. And you're, you know, I mean, we met many, many years ago, but you won't remember because uh, you were too busy uh, directing people musically, even though you weren't, if you know what I mean. Uh, um, but when like rehearsals for the F Freddie Mercury and, and other rehearsals I went to with Queen, you, you were always funny. And then we happened to meet again at an event uh, earlier this year and there was an automatic banter. There was an automatic um, being able to find the funny. And yeah. I think certain people can just find the funny in any situation. Yes, you're right, there is. And, uh, and sometimes you can be in a very uh, uh, dark thing. I mean, uh, I've been doing some research and, and uh, digging up some memories for my own book, which I hope will be done by the end of this year. And I was talking to some friends uh, and trying to get the details together of a trip we made to entertain the troops in Bosnia just after it had all stopped there. So this would have been 96, 97, whatever. And we arrived and we were all jolly and uplifted. And we're, uh, our first night uh, was staying in a holiday hotel in split down on, on the adriatic and then the next day uh we took a bus up up into the mountains to where the main uh british forces were based and i can honestly say it was like driving into something was that was at the battle of the somme it was the whole camp was just a sea of mud because they were high up in it and it rained an awful lot and uh, everybody was intense or um, quickly fashioned, uh, roughly fashioned barracks and so on. So you had mud and brand new untreated wood. And, and that vision really stuck in my mind. Uh, these guys were there trying to, to help everybody out and they were living in these conditions. 
And um, as we went around and did like five or six shows playing to these young guys, basically, uh, most of them would have been in their early 20s who were there trying to keep these two warring factions apart on, as one thing. And on the second thing, they were clearing the mess up. And some of the things they discovered were indescribable. And I'm not going to describe them now. Um, just to say that no human being should have to walk in and see what they saw and then try to make sense of it. And, and, to, and to do that on a daily basis, the only thing that gets you through is music and humour. I mean, you know, whether... And we sang uh, a song, We've Got to Get Out of This Place, um, the Animals song, which uh, had been an anthem to the uh, guys in Vietnam. That, yeah. was their, that was their song. And, and we realised this and we played it. And the, the sort of energy and a gusto that they would sing along, it, you know, it poured out of them. And, um, and adding, so it was the music and the humour that there was, was their salvation while they went through this nightmare, really, mental nightmare, as well as physical um, uh, discomfort, while they were in a place they didn't want to be and weren't meant to be anyway. They were meant to be, you know, safe and sound at home with their loved ones, um, protecting this country, not out there trying to sort out some terrible, terrible conflict. So that really came home to me. And, and we, we witnessed this, um, we witnessed some things and we witnessed the, the men and the boys, how they, they reacted to it. And it was dark humour all the way. You had to have dark humour, uh, gallows humour, whatever you call it, to turn around something that was almost, uh, you didn't want to look at, you didn't want to watch. You needed something to release that. And dark humour quickly turns to light humour. So, um, you know, that's your way and, and humour is there to change the, the state of the people around you and it yeah. changes the dynamic. And so whether it's gallows humour, dark humour, whatever, it's humour yeah. and yeah. it's humour born out of the situation. I mean, and some things are dark, but they're not dark at all. I mean, what's, what's the uh, Spike Milligan's gravestone? You know, what's written on his gravestone? I told you I was ill. I mean, that's perfect, isn't it? You know, and... Um, and um, the, oh, the other thing that really uh, occurs to me is uh, my wife's American. Of course, we're in America and we get to see stuff and we go to see stuff. And I, I watch things with Americans and they laugh at different bits. I will burst out laughing and they will laugh at something and they will get what that, that is just all hadn't seen the humor or the irony or whatever it is I'm singing. And they will laugh at something that's five seconds later. And, um, and I found that very, uh, my, my wife at first found that very strange that I would suddenly guffaw very loudly at something that would tumbleweed around the rest of the auditorium. And <laughs> it's me breaking up. Wait, how do, talking about national traits, is there a, is there a trait for humour in the music business? Because uh, every comedian and every musician, if you want a shortcut to humour, you just say something from the film Spinal Tap. Well, that, that is, uh, that is the, the Bible, the humour Bible, and, uh, uh, or Mighty Wind, or any of those. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but, but, but humour is a, a national thing. I mean, I've been in uh, setups with uh, American, American musicians or something, and uh, we laugh at different things. They, they always think that they're very cool because they like Monty Python, you know, they love that. <laughs> and, um, and Benny Hill, and... Um, and and uh, but they don't, you know, they, they often get the wrong bit of it. <laughs> they, get, they get lots of it. They get the wrong bit of it. But uh, you'll find find Americans will be that will wear their 
uh, Anglophilia or whatever it is, um, how much they love the Brits by um, showing how, how they engage with Monty Python and, um, <laughs> and, and try and show off their knowledge of, of what's going on. And it's invariably uh, slightly wrong. <laughs> That's <laughs> just what you want, off, isn't it? Uh, repeating yeah. all the cheeses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I know all the cheeses from the sketch. Do you want to hear them? You know, yeah, that's not really the point. Yeah, <laughs> and not funny on their own. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, going the other way then, going the other way, have you ever gotten yourself out of big trouble by using humour? At school, um, I avoided, um, avoided some... Uh, confrontations. I was a new boy at a, gra a grammar school having uh, moved uh, and found myself uh, at the butts of new boy uh, antics um, and then uh, and I used a combination of humour and violence to get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh that old combination. That old, yeah, that old combo. So I started oh. violent I started with violence and then turned it to humour so that everything's fine. And then Isn't later it funny, on, the way the more I punch you, the more popular I get. Well, no, and, uh, sorry, sir, he's fallen over, punch, punch. I'm helping <laughs> you up, punch, punch, punch. This made everybody laugh in the class, and then I became their mate, and they hated him, you know. Um, and then we became firm friends because uh, I didn't rat him out. In business, is it survival of the fittest or survival of the funniest? Oh, well, I don't know. I mean... Look at the President of the United States. <laughs> oh, <God>. um, <laughs> he looks fit to me, Spike. <laughs> fit and funny. He's got it all going on. He's got it all going on there. Um, yeah, I, I think that's too wide a question. There are some people, I'm sure, that have done very well with very little humour. Uh, I think in business, um, focus and energy form a great part of of what you do, but humour uh, will make it all go better. It's like a spoonful of sugar, isn't it, really? If you can be focused and energetic and you can have some humour, then you've got a full, you can full deck. You're playing with a full deck, I think. Well, you've worked with some of the most unbelievably charismatic people in the world. I'm thinking of Freddie Mercury. I'm thinking of all the lead singers in bands or maybe, you know, different band members. Was it an essential trait to be charisma charismatic, to have humour? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Freddie, as an example, was had wicked humour and um, had lots of moments where uh, his wicked side would come out, even on stage, even with himself, you know, you see him running around and playing with the audience and he'll say the most outrageous things. Being on stage would unleash his performing side, which brought out his wicked side, uh, humorous side, even more. Like he, he used to say, oh, I've got to be, oh, I've got to behave myself tonight because my, my mother's in. And they walk on stage, he said, how are you, my fucking beauties? And it's the first thing he would say on stage, he'd stop himself, you know. <laughs> and I'd look at him and i think, okay, well, fair enough. You know, he's just been banging on in the dressing room about how he's going to look up, you know, control himself. So, um, so yeah, he, he would have fun. Or well, something would happen or he would play something. And sometimes it would just be something, he'd play something, he'd cock it up. And he was meandering and he'd mess around and he'd look at me and he'd just sort of like smile. And, and pull a face, which was 
purely for my benefit because he knew that I knew. And I think that's part of uh, the performance. Uh, if you are having fun uh, as a performer, that certainly comes across in, uh, to the audience and they pick up on that. And, um, and they loved him. And the more outrageous he was, I mean, when he did his, his AO thing, there's a couple of versions where you see, hey, 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 and it finishes. They look at the audience and go, fuck you to the audience. <laughs> and that means for being so good, you know, you can fuck off because you, know, you can sing it as well as I can kind of thing. Yeah. They would laugh it up. They thought that was hilarious, you know, and, and uh, you'd have to be a very sort of uh, straight-laced person not to see the humour in that, you know. But, but I think that uh, there is a real credible link between charisma and humour. I think it's very difficult to be very charismatic without understanding the 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 things that actually bond people that yeah. that come from humor well the rhythm the timing you know there's a lot of that go, going on and uh, understanding uh the appropriate uh, hopefully um getting away with uh, delivering the right thing uh, that will alleviate the situation or sometimes knowing when to deliver the wrong thing which alleviates the situation and get, taking a chance and getting away with it kind of thing. Well what you just described with Freddie I think is is that cheekiness which yeah. is uh, adorable and yeah. just elevates people in other people's eyes. He's saying the things I wish I could yeah. you know, yeah. he's the, which I think is is brilliant. And, and, and maybe explains his appeal because everybody from all kinds of age groups and demographics and, and uh, locations, geography, loved Freddie Mercury from Blue Rinse grannies who absolutely adored him and still do. Uh, women loved him and men loved him. Even though he was gay, they overlooked that, even though some men would have a problem with liking a gay performer. Used to, maybe not so much now, but back in the mm. 70s and 80s, being a gay performer was seen to be a problem um, but you get, you know, butch guys having a drink down the pub, like Queen. Right, we're coming to the end part of the show, which um, I, I call quickfire questions. Oh. And I always say it as if we've got a jingle, but we've never had a fucking jingle. So, <laughs> so if you could... Quickfire questions. I'll do it Quickfire questions. Now, I'm giving you that for nothing, because I'm the man who wrote... Um, Edwin Starr's Happy Radio, and I wrote that jingle for him. And uh, I said, if I give you a jingle at the beginning of the track, um, DJs will use it. And they did. It was a, it was a perfect marketing tool to do that. So um, you, should, you oh. should do the same. But get some of your mates together to do a four-part harmony and sing quick five questions. Well, well, I'm hoping you're now my mate and you'll go away and do it, Spike. No, 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 sorry. I'm, I'm far too busy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you, can, you can sample the, the original one I just gave you. Quick fire questions. Okay, so you can double that up and then add harmonies to it, okay? That's the one. Okay. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be taking that into the studio. There's going to be four. And, and PRS will be calling you yes. forthwith. That's my retirement program there, right? And that's my thing. It really is. And what you should do, of course, is get, or maybe get everybody from now on to do that. So you count them in three, two, one, and they do it. And then you can put them together as a postage stamp thing. Oh. All right. We're going to quick fire questions. Who's the funniest person you've met in business? Who do I always have? Do you know what? I can't tell you that there's one. 
there's a whole rake of people who's, I tell you, who's really funny to be with. And that from the moment you sit down, and you very rarely get a serious word in, and that's Jeff Beck. Really? Hysterical man, uh, with a great mind for humour and a great reservoir of human knowledge. I was at something with him the other day, and we started talking about people that he would really admire as guitarists. And, and I said, well, who does it go back with? And, he, and Link Cray was a, a really uh, early, um, heavy sort of like guitar player. And, uh, and but then <laughs> the joke was going to be that um, Jeff Beck knew John McLaughlin. That was it. And that John McLaughlin had put out an album, apparently, and I haven't seen this, I don't know, but on the front of it is like a little business card that apparently he had printed John McLaughlin when he was a youngster. So I mean, they said, um, um, Johnny McLaughlin plays guitar available for weddings, funerals, I mean, something like that. This little this really shitty business card from the 60s. Anyway, he took this business card and put it on the front of an album. Now, I haven't seen that, so that may need some fact check on that. Um, and we said, oh, God, yeah, John McLaughlin. And we said, well, how amazing was it when the Mahavishnu Orchestra just descended, I think it was the early 70s, I think. Now, for musicians, the early 70s was an incredible time of boundaries being pushed, envelopes. Um, and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, with the interplay of his, Johnny McLaughlin, John McLaughlin's incredibly free-form uh, energetic and inventive guitar, along with the first violinist and uh, the drumming. Uh, and, and Roger said, oh, of course, and wasn't that drummer fantastic? And I said, oh, you mean Billy Cotton? And of course it isn't Billy Cotton, it's Billy Cobham. Mm -hmm. But Billy Cotton used to have a radio show, Wakey Wakey, <laughs> Billy Cotton band show. Jeff Beck fell over laughing because he got the reference immediately. The fact of having Bill Cotton, who was a baldy old conductor, playing drums with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. <laughs> he made the contact immediately. Now, I can't tell that joke to very many people. I can't tell that story because it will whoosh straight over the head. You need to have all the references from the John McLaughlin to Mahavishnu to the Billy Cotton Band Show. And you only know about the Billy Cotton Band Show if you were a kid in the 50s. So. There you go. They're brilliant. By the way, you've killed quick-fire questions. Oh, have I? Right. <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> um, what book makes you laugh? Hmm. I used to read, as a schoolboy, Jennings and Derbyshire, The Adventures of Jennings and Derbyshire, and uh, I was writing about that as a piece... Uh, um, trying to recall school days. And I bought one online. And at the age of 68, it still made me laugh. <laughs> Something that's designed for a 12 year old. So which really um, shows uh, the talent of uh, the author. You know? Yeah, uh, no. Well, I won't read all of it, but I read that. Yeah. And also what's making I... me laugh right at the moment is the story of Jimmy, Jimmy Webb. Oh, well, I'll take that as a recommendation because I, I, I just think he was a genius. Yeah, and, and it's not a funny book as such, but some of the things that happen in it, um, I personally really related to and just echo things. What film makes you laugh? Oh, always makes me laugh. Um, it's a mad, 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 mad world, um, uh, which is features a Spencer Tracy in a straight role, but it, 
and it's really strange. I always like that film because there's one gag in there where um, Jimmy Durante is laying on the side of a rocky mountain and he, and he croaks, and as he croaks, his foot shoots up and it kicks a bucket down the hill. <laughs> and I saw that in the cinema and I cracked, and it makes me crack now just because of the timing and it was so unexpected. And as it turns out, um, you know, as the way things go around, that film was shot and is centered upon um, where my house is in Palm, Palm Springs, California. So. Oh. So I feel that it's a, a, a film about the, the home I have now, just ahead of time. What word makes you laugh? Well, bollocks is always a good one because it's so useful. <laughs> yeah, it makes you laugh too. <laughs> it does. Well, it, I, my, my favourite thing of that, do you remember when um, Virgin was sued uh, for, for the cover of Nevermind the Bollocks? I do indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, John Lydon, who I'm sure you've met as well, who is a, a, a funny man, and he was interviewed by like Thames News at six or something, and then outside the court, and they went, put a mic in front of his face and went, uh, John Lydon, um, what do you think of the verdict? And he went, bollocks is legal. Bollocks, bollocks, bollocks. <laughs> On a slightly serious note in quick-fire questions, we'd always like to stick one in. What's not funny? Racism. Unfortunately, in music, it's one of the least, uh, as far as I'm concerned, least racist things uh, you do, because we meet and work with people uh, all over, from all over the world, from all kinds of musical cultures, and I embrace that. So... Um, I'm glad to say that. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for everybody in all situations, and there will be people who will say, "No, hang on a minute." Um, but the, yeah, that's that's the one thing I would say is. Adopted. But music changed the course of a lot of things uh, with racism. Oh, yeah. Even if you go back to the Beatles and the Stones, they were they were listening to all the black artists, and were actually the people that brought those black artists back to America, really, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and gave them an audience. Very true, very true. Yeah, I mean, uh, people like Chuck Berry and uh, Little Richard, very grateful to the Beatles and the Stones for, for opening up um, audiences to them in America, and radio stations, of course. Yeah, and, absolutely. Like black music. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to think that now, you know, find it very hard. Yeah, extraordinary. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Oh, God. Can I be both? <laughs> no, these are the rules, Spike. Do you know what? There are, there are, there are different hats for different days. There are, there are days when you certainly want to be considered clever, uh, but most of the time it'd be nice to be considered funny. Yeah, Yeah. no, no that's a good answer. Um, and finally, Desert Island Gags. You've got one gag that you can take with you to a desert island. What's that gag? You know, I don't think it's necessarily a funny gag, but it brings a smile to me because the way I heard it, and it was told to me by, not told to me, but I heard it from a comedian that I wasn't particularly a fan of because my dad didn't like him. And that, and that was Bob Monkhouse. Bob Monkhouse was on TV a lot. And he was on TV in the 50s. And my dad used to go, that's smarmy git. Why is he on again? You know, it's really, and I said, yeah, yeah, of course, he's smarmy git. You know, so, so I had that inbuilt prejudice. And then I heard him, Say this one thing, and I think I I used it in a moment. I'm not sure, and it, and it was with uh, the members of Queen. So I was the first one to pass this gag on, 
to them and said, and from Bob Monk Council said, when I was young, people asked me what I wanted to do or what I want to be when I grew up. And I told them that I wanted to be a comedian. And they all laughed. They're not laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. We love Bob. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Spike. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to stay and talk to you, but I've got to go and wait in the lobby for the limo. Yeah, so... super drunk. Yeah, super drunk. <laughs> in Norma Dome. In the Norma Dome. In Norma Dome. Spike Edney, thank you so much for being my guest on the Humorology podcast. Hey, it was fun. It was fun. I had a laugh. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.